Welcome back, everyone, as we continue our study in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Last week, we completed 1 Corinthians, and today we begin the first two chapters of 2 Corinthians. If you've read through the book of 2 Corinthians, or I should say the letter of 2 Corinthians, I'm sure you noticed a dramatic change between the tone of this letter and Paul's previous letter to Corinth. Uh, in the first letter, he was very tough on the Corinthians. He starts off calling them babies and Messiah, spiritually immature, being soulish believers instead of spiritual believers, and that he could not talk to them as spiritual men. But that tone is completely gone this time around. And instead of moving forcefully from one difficult topic to the next, Paul in this letter almost writes with a stream of consciousness. It's almost as if he's so filled with relief that he does not have to be so tough on the Corinthians, does not have to rebuke them so much. Um, You just see him filled with relief as he talks to them. Something had happened between that first letter and this letter. We don't know how much time transpired in between, but the Corinthians had changed. And that's why I've called this teaching life equals change. We need to be masters of change in this world because this world is not stable. It's always changing like the waves of the sea. I call it a water world. And uh, we need to learn how to stand on the rock and possibly walk on the water. And this requires constant adjustment, constant attention to things around us, but most of all, attention to what God is telling us through his word and through his spirit. Just a a couple points of interest. If you go to chapter 2 for a moment, Paul refers to his first letter to the Corinthians, and he discusses his state of mind when he wrote that letter. Uh, Go to chapter 2 and look at verses 3 and 4. Paul says, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He knew that his first letter would cause pain. That was not his intention for the letter, but he knew it would happen nevertheless. But apparently that pain that he caused bore good fruit. And as you've heard me say many times, all pain is birth pain. And the pain that Paul inflicted on the Corinthians with his harsh letter to them bore good fruit. And also go over to chapter 7 for a moment. Chapter 7, and we'll start with verse 4. And here he talks about uh, a bit more about his, his previous letter. In verse 4 he says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. The God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. 
As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And then move down to verse 13. Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you is true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. What a different tone. Something had happened to these Corinthians. So apparently, after Paul wrote his previous letter and caused them great grief, grief that led to repentance, he sent Titus to visit them. And then when Titus brought back the report to Paul, Paul is now rejoicing as he writes this new letter to the Corinthians. And he's so relieved, he's so ecstatic that they have grown up, they have matured. You know, I I know people who call themselves believers, call themselves disciples, and uh, 20 years ago, they were angry. Today, they're still angry. 20 years ago, they were emotional and unforgiving. Today, they're still emotional and unforgiving. 20 years ago, they uh, had difficulty with their faithfully trusting God, and they still don't trust God today. They just have never changed. Something's wrong. Something's broken. We need to be like the Corinthians, not in the sins they committed previously, but in their ability to repent, to change their lives, to stand up and walk forward. We've got to be able to do that. And if we're not doing that, something's wrong. We need to fix that. So we'll get to that in a moment, but let's just pick up the, uh, the letter right at the beginning and start with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Messiah Yeshua by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the assembly of God that is at Corinth with all the holy ones who are in the whole, the whole of Achaia. Achaia is the south half of Greece. It contained Athens and Sincrea, and Corinth was there, and Corinth was the capital of Achaia the southern section of Greece. Verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Master, Yeshua the Messiah. I want you to pay attention how many times the word comfort is mentioned in these next few verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Master, Yeshua the Messiah, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Messiah's suffering, so through Messiah we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Comfort. We all love comfort. But if you look at this passage, comfort is not a replacement for suffering. It is what God gives us after we suffer. Comfort follows affliction. 
Comfort follows testing. Comfort follows pain, but is never a substitute for it. The word for comfort here in Greek is the word periklesis, which means to, to, to draw alongside, to call to one side. And our stress in this world is when we feel distant from God. He's always close, but we don't always feel that closeness. And when we don't, we go through pain. And I guess you could also say we go through pain, we feel like God's far away. But God comforts us by calling us to his side. And when we sense he's with us, that he loves us, he's carrying us, everything's going to be okay. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's the purpose of suffering, isn't it? To develop reliance upon God, to truly rely upon himself, upon him and not upon ourselves. Verse 10, he delivered us with such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The suffering he's talking about, the best we can tell, is recorded in Acts chapter 19 when he went to Ephesus, which uh, was the place where it was the headquarters for the worship of Artemis or the goddess Diana. And uh, so if you go back to chapter 19 of Acts, you can read about that incident and how Paul came very close to losing his life. And it was a, it was a horrible time, but God brought them through. Verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity, godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Four things. That's a good checklist. How are you behaving in the world? We should behave in the world with simplicity. Keep our speech simple, plain, to the point, and true. With godly sincerity. Don't behave one way when in your heart you're thinking something else. Be sincere and be holy and godly about it. And not by earthly wisdom. And this is something that really troubles me with so many believers I know. They want wisdom, and they think they have wisdom, and they think their decisions are wise. But their decisions do not bear good fruit. It's because their wisdom is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it's earthly. James writes about this in chapter 3 of James, verses 13 to 15. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly. Earthly wisdom, that's what Paul is talking about here in 2 Corinthians. It is soulish. It doesn't come out of the spirit. It comes out of the mind, the will, and the emotions of the person. It's soulish. It does not have its foundation in the spiritual realm. 
It comes from human reasoning and not from obedience to God's direction. And then he says, it's demonic. Whoa, that seems like quite a jump. But James makes no bones about it. When we do not operate according to the wisdom that comes from above, there's only one other source from that. You see, the demonic is all about doing things my way. And as I've said before, Satan doesn't care whether you do things his way. He just wants you to do things your way. And when you do that, you're in rebellion. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. And that kind of rebellion is demonic in nature. So we need to be very cautious. We do not live our lives, make decisions for our families based on pure human reasoning and worldly wisdom. It's dangerous stuff. We need to be consulting God, living according to his word, and being sensitive to his direction in our lives. Verse 13, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our master Yeshua, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Doesn't Paul sound like a, a proud father of children who have repented and, and corrected and, and, and turned their lives around? You can just see the, and feel the joy that he has for the people in Corinth. Verse 15, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send Send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes and no? He says yes, yes, and no, no, and to be like very emphatic. To say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. In other words, we don't vacillate. We don't say one thing and then say the next. We, we stick to what we say. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Yeshua the Messiah, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. I love that line. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. There's an important concept that we need to grasp, and that is this. We too often pray to God that he gives us certain things, certain results, certain outcomes. But what he does when he answers us, he always just gives us more of Yeshua. Is everything God wants to tell us, everything God wants to promote in us and, and to, uh, and to uh, encourage within us is more of Yeshua. So many times in my life, I would pray for something over here, but over time, my prayer would change, and I realized I needed more of Yeshua. Or I pray for this outcome over here, and I, as I pray, my prayer would evolve into where I realized I needed more of Yeshua. God, through the Word, the living Word of Yeshua, the Alpha and the Omega, the Aleph and Tav, God spoke forth the creation. What God has to say, what God has to create, what God has to do, He does through Yeshua. Yeshua is the fulfillment of God's word to us. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who 
establishes us with you in Messiah, has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit and our hearts as a guarantee. He establishes us, anoints us, puts a seal on us, and gives us his spirit. Those are four qualifications to look for in a leader. But I call God to witness against you. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. Chapter 2, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? That's an interesting question. He says, I caused you pain because of your bad behavior. And the only thing that can really give me relief from that pain and restore my joy <clears throat> is for your behavior to change. Any parent understands that, uh, that comment of Paul's. Let's move on down to verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now, what Paul's talking about in these next few verses is found back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There was some gross sexual immorality that was taking place in the assembly, the, the redeemed community of Corinth. And the people of Corinth, in their immaturity, tolerated this horrible uh, perversion, thinking that this is what Christian love looked like. And Paul severely reprimanded them for this. This is not what love looks like. And uh, he told them they needed to remove this person, remove the person from the assembly, so that hopefully, and with prayer, this person would finally feel the weight of his sin and then come to repentance and could be restored. That is the incident that Paul's referring to here. Go back to 1 Corinthians 5, and you can read about it there. So again, we'll start with verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. He was causing you pain. You may not have felt it as pain, but he was causing damage to you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So the person had repented. So Paul says, turn to him, welcome him back, comfort him. Verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Messiah, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. A lot of believers are ignorant of Satan's designs. Satan is always on the edge. And I use the word Satan not only as an angelic being who rebelled against God, but any of the forces of deception that work in this world, um, in the spiritual realm, we just call those things Satan as well. And uh, though Satan himself may not even be aware of me or aware of you, he's not omniscient after all, his forces are always there. The spirit of the enemy, the spirit of the accuser is always present in the world. 
And so every time we do something right, the enemy accuses us and tries to diminish our joy. And whenever we're doing something right, he comes to tempt us to do something wrong. And the moment we do that wrong thing, he then comes alongside to accuse us for having done it. There's nothing good that we ever do or experience or learn that the enemy doesn't come along and try to diminish in some way. So we cannot afford to be ignorant of his devices and his strategies in this world. Robin and I were just talking last evening about uh, a wonderful experience that she had in a conversation in a Bible study this week. And uh, it was just like God showed up and and brought the lives of these ladies together in such a spectacular way, an unforgettable way, a way that's, that's rare. It doesn't happen very often. And um, I almost felt like warning her, okay, tomorrow is going to be a bad day. And sure enough, the next day, the next couple of days, were just really kind of downers. And, uh, and so we got to talking about it last night. And, uh, and every time I've had a, what you might call a spiritual high is immediately followed by a very spiritual low. And I think God's trying to teach us something here, and it's this. Emotions are wonderful. They're good. Enjoy them when they come. And, and when God does show up, there is great joy. But the temptation can then be to want that joy repeated again and again and again. And then to start seeking that kind of emotion. And then to try to live on that kind of emotion. And God says, no, you live by faith. You know what I did. You know what I said. You know what you experienced. So I'm going to take away the emotion of that tomorrow. But the reality of what occurred is still, still just as real. So you have faith in it. You stand on that. It's like the lightning flash and everything lights up. Everything's colorful. Everything's clear. But then the lightning flash ends. But you still have the memory of what you saw. Walk in that faith. Walk in what happened and not what you feel about what happened. When we become addicted to emotion, we are babies. And that is how the church at Corinth was. They were babies in Messiah, moving from one emotional high, seeking the next emotional high. We must wean ourselves from that, and God is trying to raise us up into mature believers, where we walk in the strength of our faith and of the wisdom and the knowledge we have of his will. But if we always seek a spiritual high, we will be tossed around and never grow up. We will be locked into to permanent immaturity. God needs people who are mature and strong. Children can afford to live in emotion, but a parent cannot. Because of a, of a mother, when she hears the baby crying, decides, well, I don't feel like getting up. That baby's going to be in a world of hurt. We need to be parents. We need to grow up. We need to not act out of our emotions, but do what needs to be done, because it's the right thing to do. You can read the rest of chapter 2 on your own. I really want to get onto something different, and I don't want to go over time, if, if that can be helped. And um, as I mentioned before, I call this teaching, Life is Change. 
because when I read through Second Corinthians, I, as I mentioned earlier, I was just struck by the change in tone. What caused Paul's change in tone? The Corinthians had changed. They had changed. They were different people now. They were no longer locked in immaturity. They were no longer babies of Messiah. They were no longer soulish believers. They become spiritual believers. They were on their way. They were growing into maturity. And Paul was filled with joy. They changed. We have to change as well. Because life is change. We need to be masters of change. But not all change is good. And often we make changes that are not good and fail to make the changes that are. Too many times we make changes only because our comfort is removed and we're forced into making a change. But as disciples of Messiah, we should make change because he says it's time to move, time to change. It's like, uh, I I love that line Yeshua says in the, The Chosen, where the disciples are always trying to get things moving a certain way and and, uh, and Yeshua tells them, get used to different. Get used to different. And um, as a disciple of Yeshua, yeah, it's always different. It's always something new, unexpected. But what an adventure it is to walk with Messiah. So what I did is I, I thought about change. I, I thought, I wonder what the Hebrew words for change are. Now, of course, when you're learning Hebrew... Uh, the basic word for change that you learn is the word chalaf, chalaf, which is, that's the standard Hebrew word. That's probably the only Hebrew word you'll learn in a Hebrew class, uh, Hebrew word for change. But what I do, I, I go to my Bible software on my computer, and I'll take an English translation like uh, the New American Standard or the ESV, and I'll type in change. And hit the button and look for all the verses that use that English word change. And then I look at the Hebrew to see what Hebrew word lies behind the English word change. And I thought, well, there's probably a couple Hebrew words there. But I was shocked to find that there were six different Hebrew words that are translated as change. So this is the point where you start to rub your hands together and think there's something God's wanting to say through this. And as I began to explore these six Hebrew words, I, I began to realize that there are six kinds of changes that we go through. And if we're going to be a master of change and be good at change, to avoid bad changes and do the good changes according to God's will, it's, uh, it might be a good thing to understand the Hebrew words that God employs to express change. What kind of changes are involved? And as I looked at these six, I found that each one can have a a positive connotation and also have a very negative connotation. Each of these can be applied in the correct way, but they can also be engaged in a very wrong way. So let's go through these, and if I had this to do over again, I would have put a summary of these six words at the end of the notes, but I failed to do that. So I'll leave that up to you. That's your homework. And if you want to pause the teaching at this point and go and print out the notes, there are about two and a half pages of, um, of scripture references that I give at the end here, and they're on, they'll be on the screen. But uh, they'll be too small to read here. You need to print them out. And you can look at examples. I've categorized uh, passages that use these six different words. I'm going to give you a few of them on the screen here, but uh, there are more of them back in the notes. So let's take this first one. 
the word chalaf. And I want to tell you this also up front, because I know I'll be getting a lot of emails, so I'm going to ask you just to spare me the emails and the text. Because you're going to go through these words and say, well, Grant, I found here a, a use of a word that's not like what you said. Of course you will. Some of these words are used hundreds of times in the scriptures. Think of this more as a meditation upon these six words. And as I went through them, I thought, Lord, what, what's overall, what, how is this word being used? What are you trying to teach through it? So I'm going to tell you right up front, these are the things I see as to how each of these words is used and the emphasis God would like us to look at for this morning. And if you can study these out, you could take months or maybe years studying out these six words and you can, you can write a book on all of them. So I'm going to make this very simple. It's going to be very short and there'll be plenty of exceptions to the examples I give you for these words. So I'll admit that right up front. Kalaf uh, means change, and it usually means a change in identity. I find that this is kind of the feel of the word. It's when uh, someone changes their image, or they change their clothes. They change the what they project to the world. Here are some examples. Genesis 35, 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him. And this is after the whole <laughs> horrible mess up at Shechem. Put away the foreign gods which are among you and purify yourselves and chalaf, change your garments. Take those off, put these on. Why did they have to change their garments? Maybe they had started dressing like the uh, idol worshippers around them instead of as the modest people God called them to be. Um, but it's almost like the change of garments is a change of presentation, a change of identity. Because when they put away their idols, they put away the old garments as well. Genesis 45, 22, to each of them he gave changes of garments. This is referring to Joseph with his brothers when he revealed himself to them. He gave them a chalaf of garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Now, of course, up here in the first reference, change is used as a verb, and here it's used as a noun. And that's pretty much true of any Hebrew verb. It can be used as a noun as well as a verb. Isaiah 2.18, but the idols will completely vanish. That's also the word chalaf. So, as we think of chalaf, you can think of the positive applications of this word. Positive applications. To make a change, an internal change, that expresses itself in the external. An internal change that expresses itself as the, in the external. That's a good thing. If you're changing inside, it should be obvious on the outside. God does work from the inside out. And you know, in Romans and Ephesians and in Colossians, Paul talks about putting off the old man or the old self, putting on the new self. It's almost like a change of garments. And you put off the old ways, the old habits, the old ways of thinking, the old attitudes, the old behaviors, the old addictions, but you must replace them with something new. Just putting off the old things makes you naked. You must put on the new things and clothe yourself in the new self. But there's a negative connotation as well. Instead of changing the inside, we can change only the outside. So we put an image out there of something that we are not. 
This is how the ego always expresses itself. The ego is a phantom soul that we project to the world. The ego is a lie. Ego is not pride. Pride is me saying I'm better than you. Ego simply says what you see is different from who I really am. And ego can express itself as great humility, great indifference, great fear, great worry. I'm the best or I'm the worst. And it's uh, just this image we want people to believe. And we hide behind that phantom soul so that they don't see who we really are. Almost all the pain we experience in this life is the pain we experience when people damage our egos. And what we need to realize is they're actually helping us. Let them damage the ego. Let them crush and destroy the ego. The ego is my enemy. So let it be crushed. Let it be ground into powder. Because God wants the true me to be seen. And he wants the true me to become a vessel of light. There's no room for lies and deception. Let's go on to the second one. The second word is the word nacham. Now, this is the word that Adam Haynes talked about two weeks ago at our Torah service. Nacham. It's a, it's a word that's used many, many times, I think a couple hundred times, if I'm not mistaken. And this word, nacham, is almost always translated comfort. Comfort. And the first two letters of this word, in fact, the first two letters are the word, the name, Noah. And the word Noah, Noach, means rest. And his parents named him Noah because uh, prophetically they said he'll give rest to this generation. The rabbi, Samson Raphael Hirsch, says when you see the word nacham, comfort, it means a change in attitude. This word, by the way, is also uh, the root of the name Nahum and Nehemiah. A change in attitude. Because after all, when you're in pain and someone comforts you, it's because they help you to see things differently. They help you to see things in a different context. They help you work through the lies you may believe in that are causing so much, so much agony in your soul. And they help restore you to a, an attitude and perspective of truth. And you feel, okay, I feel better now. And uh, that's what Nachum does. Now let's look at some examples of how this word is used. Genesis 5, uh, 50, 21. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. They were concerned. They were fearful. And so he spoke to them and brought a change in their attitude. And this was experienced as comfort. Exodus 13, 17. Now it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people nachum their minds. They changed their minds. They changed their attitudes when they see war and they return to Egypt. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should nachum. 
that he should repent. In other words, that he should change his attitude. His attitude is always exactly right. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? So we can see this word nacham means more than just comfort. It means a change in the way we think. And this is a very positive thing. We need to align our thinking with truth. But we need to realize that comfort, nacham, as we saw earlier, read earlier in 2 Corinthians, comfort follows, follows affliction. We want comfort instead of affliction. Of course we do. Who wouldn't? But God gives comfort after he inflicts the pain. But the negative connotation for this is when we seek comfort instead of change. You know, we hate change when things are going fine. But we love change when things are very uncomfortable. And God allows us to get uncomfortable so that we will change. I mean, think about it. After a a long, hard day working, you look forward to going to bed, and finally the time comes, you, you crawl in under the sheets, you get your pillow just right, you put your head down, and you think, oh, I never want to move again. By and by, something in the back of your brain says, oh, I need to roll over. So you, you roll over, and you get yourself situated and think, oh, I never want to move again. But a little bit after that, something in the back of your brain tells you, you need to roll over again. You know what happens? You're comfortable until you're not. And then when you're uncomfortable, you change. And... Um, But God often calls us to change before we get uncomfortable. He calls us to change because it's time to go. We're like sheep. He's the shepherd. It's time to move to a new new pasture. So we need to be people who have the attitude of I'm going to follow God no matter what. And, um, And comfort will come after affliction. And we will have affliction. We will have dangers. And we will have trials in this world. So, nacham, another word that's translated change in several places. Third word, uh, savav. Savav is a, a word that you learn in Hebrew early on, and it always means to go around something, to go around. You know, you're, you're driving, and you come to the roundabout, and you go around. That's savav. And, uh, but it's also translated change in some places. But it's a change of surroundings, a change of surroundings. Look at Exodus 39, 6. Um, They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings. That word enclosed uh, is the word that comes from the root savav. They put these these settings and hold the stones in place on the ephod. And on the uh, the shoulder uh, parts that had the, the stones of the names of the Israelites on them. 2 Samuel 14.20, in order to survive the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this thing. This is a story you can read in 2 Samuel 14 where Joab instigated having a woman go and appear to King David to try to manipulate him into doing something Joab wanted. And finally, um, David sussed out that this woman was acting on behalf of someone else. And he says, is Joab behind this? 
And she says, yes, in order to survive, to change the appearance of things, to change the surroundings of things. Zechariah 14.10, all the land will be survived. It will all change, be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. Uh, in the end times, it's prophesied that Jerusalem, which is surrounded by mountains taller than itself. Uh, you know, David wrote, just as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so does the Lord surround, uh, surround his people. And so when you're in Jerusalem, look out, you'll just see mountains all the way around. But it's prophesied that when Messiah returns, that mount that Jerusalem is on rises to where it is now above the other mountains. But then it even says that the land will be changed into a plain. It's almost as if Jerusalem becomes the only mountain. And then water goes out to the east and to the west. And boy, that should be something to see. So there the word savav is changed concerning the land that is around Jerusalem. Now there's a very positive connotation to this. <clears throat> because um, you think of a picture frame. And I think as a person grows in Messiah, their lives become framed in a, in a very beautiful frame because we change our surroundings. It may change the way we look, the way we wear our hair, the way we dress. It may change um, uh, our, our homes to where they're more beautiful and reflect the internal harmony that we have. And so uh, I, I know with Robin, she's, uh, uh, she's going to be so embarrassed listening to this teaching. She loves a beautiful environment. And um, sometimes when there's an internal conflict, she may, and you may as well, start changing things out here because there's something going on in here. And, um, but just changing surroundings won't change what's inside. But when there is a change inside, it should be reflected in the beauty of the surroundings. Our homes should be places of order. If your home is a place of disorder, there's probably disorder in here. If your home is a place of clutter, it's because there's a lot of clutter up here. And uh, as your lives are brought more into order and more in obedience to, to, to Yeshua, it should be seen in our homes. It should be seen in the way we conduct ourselves and, and, uh, and so many things in our surroundings. But the negative thing here is... Uh, Instead of changing ourselves, we just change our surroundings. It's like the people who, who are we call church hoppers, uh, where they get disgruntled with something, and they say, let's leave. Let's change our surroundings. Let's change the environment instead of change my heart. I'm reminded of, uh, you know, Beth Coon has never owned a building. We always rent buildings, and it's been church buildings all along, and it was, uh, I think, the second, yeah, the second building we rented. We were there for a little over three years, about three and a half years, and during those three and a half years, that church had gone through three pastors, and they were now on an interim pastor as they looked for their fourth, and then finally we left there because the people in leadership were just so they were just a mess. Let me just put it that way. 
they were a wreck. There was so much inner turmoil. There was so much ego involved. There was so much control and, and micromanagement. And uh, they were just not mature. They were very fleshly people. And so they kept just get rid of the pastor. Let's get a new one in there. Trot a new one in. They're always trying to change the externals, thinking that'll fix the problem. But the problem was inside. Changing the pastor was not going to change what was in here. Our fourth word, the word shana, and I was kind of shocked by this because if you know Hebrew, you know that the word shana is a Hebrew word for year. It's the word for year. But it can be used as a verb for change, and it is used a few places this way. Malachi 3.6, for I, Adonai, do not change. Therefore, and that's the word shana. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Psalm 89.34, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I shana the utterance of my lips. I will not change it, not alter it. Daniel 7.25 talks about the Antichrist coming. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High. And he shall think to shana the times and the law. Everything about this word, when it's used in response to change, means like a change of seasons, a change in times. And God says, uh, I don't change. Things around here may change, but it doesn't affect me. As I go through time, I stay the same. My words stay the same. But as you see the Antichrist, he'll look to change the times. Everything about the word shana is talking about something seasonal. Something that is a, a, should be a normal kind of positive change, like a, a change of, of uh, seasons, healthy seasonal change. And uh, sometimes the proper response to something we don't like is give it time. Give it time. You plant a seed, next day you don't see a fruit tree growing out of the, out of the ground. Well, give it time. You have to give it time. Over the time of seasons, it'll change. But a negative response to change is also give it time. Give it time. Some people think by just waiting and waiting and waiting, things will change, and they don't. There are certain things we're required to change, and there are certain things we must just exercise patience and wait to change. We need to be very careful how we apply that, that phrase, give it time. Some things are seasonal and we experience them as positive, like when we see our, uh, our newborn baby begin to, uh, to grow and get some teeth and chew solid food and begin to walk, begin to talk. These changes are the kinds of healthy changes that represent good, healthy uh, development. But there are other kinds of changes that aren't so good. Um, when you start aging, getting weaker, getting forgetful, losing your teeth, having more difficult walking, difficulty walking. And these are the negative uh, changes that are seasonal, though, and they're to be expected and not to be fought. We, we take good care of ourselves, but um, people who are always trying to get a nip and a tuck and something added or something taken away so they can stay youthful. 
they just make themselves uh, clownish by this. And uh, I remember my mom, when she started getting gray hair, she, I heard her talking to another lady, and she says, well, I've just determined I'm going to grow old gracefully. And she did. But her heart continued to grow younger and younger. So that was a very healthy change that everyone saw in her. You know, this word Shana is also the root of the word Shani, which means second. Um, on the second day of creation, says God saw that all he made was very good. There was evening, there was a morning. I'm sorry, the second day, yes, second day. The second day he did not say it was good. He said, but he did say there is evening and morning, Yom Shani, a second day. So this kind of change has to do with change specifically over time, seasonal. Uh, positive changes again, like we're seeing winter turn into spring, and soon hope to see spring turn into summer. We love that. But when you see fall begin to turn into winter, not so great. So um, seasonal changes. God never changes. We do. And these are the kind of changes that uh, can be very healthy, but sometimes time is not our friend, and that can bring negative things. We need to be very careful to understand what is normal change over time and what is not good change over time. Because if we re- resist change, then what happens? Things grow stale and stagnant. And uh, we need to be skillful in how we bring Shana into the world and how we cooperate with this kind of shana, this kind of change. The Hebrew word mur usually has a negative connotation, not always, but as I looked at passages that use this word for change, uh, I found more of them to be negative in connotation rather than positive. Now, what the word mur means is to substitute one thing for another, change out this, replace it with that. Leviticus 27.33 says he is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad. When someone uh, is tithing their livestock, they count in every tenth animal you set aside because that's going to belong to the Lord. You're tithing your livestock. And it says when you come to that tenth animal, he is not to be concerned whether it's good or bad, nor shall he moor exchange it. Or if he does moor exchange it, then both it and its moor, its substitute, shall become holy. So, there you see a good practical use of this word more, to swap something for something else. Jeremiah 2.11, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. They've swapped out their glory for something that has no benefit to it. Hosea 4.7, the more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me, I will more. I will change their glory into shame. I'm going to take their glory away, replace it with shame. So here we see more substituting one thing for another, but usually it's negative and not positive. Now, there is a positive connotation for this. When we substitute the better or the best for the good. In other words, we swap out the good for the best, or we swap out the worst for the better. These are good substitutions. Um, If you're doing something and you find out there's a better way to do that same thing, it saves you time and money and energy, 
you'd swap it out. That's a good moor. That's a good substitution. But would you change for the sake of change? When you change out of pure boredom, that's not so good. Because you will always be chasing what is novel and what is new. And this means you are focused on the external rather than on the internal. Some people develop a, a really great prayer life. After a while, they get bored with it, meh, and they swap it out for watching soap operas or, or uh, doing nonsense. We need to be careful what we swap out because we get bored. So, more can be a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. And then the last one. The last one is the word hafik. Hafik. And this refers to more of a permanent change, something that cannot be changed back. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? No. And the leopard his spots? No. They're kind of permanent things. You'd like to change them, can't be changed. Genesis 19.25 referred to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he, God, he hafak, he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So let me ask you something. Have those cities of Sodom and Gomorrah ever been rebuilt? No. When he overthrew them, when he brought hafak against them, they changed and they never change back. Zephaniah 3.9 For at that time I will hafik, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of Adonai and serve him with one accord. And uh, this is a, a, a future event. Some people believe, and it probably does apply to the people of Israel now once again speaking Hebrew. This this dead language is now a living language, and the, the traffic signs are in Hebrew when you go to Israel. And so this has been fulfilled partially, but the day comes when the confusion that was caused at Babel will be completely undone. Everyone comes back to one language, and they will all serve and call upon the name of Adonai together. So Hafik has to do with some, a change that's more permanent. Positive? I think of a great change that's coming. That's the world to come. Won't that be wonderful? When that comes, it will never be replaced by a different world. It'll be here. It'll be here forever. It'll never have to be swapped out, never be changed. But a negative application, commitment to a bad idea. We run into these people all the time. How about the Nazis? That was a bad idea. But people became so committed to it, they died as martyrs for their bad idea. They made a change and never changed back. Maybe you've been in a political conversation with somebody and you realize they've got some really bad ideas, but they will not change. We need to be careful that we are not committed to a bad idea about something, to where we cannot change. We must learn to pry out our old notions of how things used to work when God has called us to something new. And what may have worked yesterday and have been righteous yesterday is no longer working today and is not a righteous decision today. 
we need to be people who are able to change for the better. And when we have grasped onto something that is of God, we need to be unchangeable. It needs to be a hafak. It needs to be something we're going to be permanent with this. When you commit to be a disciple of Yeshua, you never change back from that decision. When you commit to someone in marriage, and, um, and if they have not violated that marriage covenant, then you need to stay in that marriage until they violate it and they break that covenant and the scriptures give you permission. Until then, you hang on. When you are to love your neighbor, to love your spouse, to love your enemy, you love without changing. We need to reflect God's attitude in these things and be unchangeable. But let's make sure, let's be very careful that we do not become unchangeable with, thing, with things that must change. So those are the six words. I encourage you to go back over them and to, um, and to uh, maybe analyze and chart them out and, and make a, a summary of those and do some inventory in your own life. What are the things that are not changing that should what are the things that are changing that should not? What are the things in your external world that you can change or shouldn't change? What are the things in your internal world? What are the things in your time and in your seasons that need to change? And look at these six kinds of change. Go over them. Look at the verses and the, the additional ones I provide for you. And really take some time on this. Think of the world this way. We live in a water world. I know there's a movie made years ago uh, called Water World, where it's in the future time, the whole world is like one big huge ocean. But think of a water world where everything is unstable. Sometimes the water's calm, sometimes it's a little wavy, sometimes it's uh, huge waves that will just are destructive. That's how the world is depicted in the scriptures when you see oceans. And you see the waves. It's always a picture of the instability of the world system. No wonder in the world to come, the new heavens and new earth. In Revelation 21, it says, and there are no more seas. The whole world comes to a place of stability. But what do you do in a water world? Well, there are two things. One is you stand on the rock. You stand on the rock of Yeshua. You stand on the rock of God's word. You stand on that so you are not shaken. But there's another thing, a, much, a, a skill that's just if not more difficult than staying on the rock, and that's walking on water. Yeshua could do it with ease. Peter did it as well, but not so well. Because when you learn to walk in this world, and we are to walk in it, it's something that's heaving and changing, and moving, and we need to get our sea legs under us, and we need to be able to adjust to change. And if we don't, we're going to sink. So stand on the rock, but learn to walk on water as well. And um, I'm talking about spiritually, not physically. But uh, we need to learn to do both. And learning healthy change and how to adjust to change and always taking inventory of our lives and how are we walking? Are we keeping our stability? That's something we must do constantly. Now near the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians to do this. 
And I am challenging you to do this too. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves. Don't ask God to test you. That's a bad idea. Uh, Yeshua says, lead us not into testing. But Paul says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Yeshua the Messiah is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. If 10, 20 years ago, 5 years ago, you had an anger issue, do you still have an anger issue? Maybe you're not still in the faith. Did you wrestle with unforgiveness 5, 10, 20 years ago and you still do? Hmm. Maybe you need to re-examine yourself. Are you really in the faith? If you were an emotional wreck 10, 15 years ago, and you're still in an emotional wreck today, maybe you need to examine yourself. Are you still in the faith? If you were paralyzed with fear 5, 10, 15 years ago, and you still are today, maybe you're not in the faith. We need to do what Paul says. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. That means if you're truly being faithful, if you really are believing God and his promises. Are you really doing that? Or did you simply join a church, say a prayer, sign a document, say, okay, I'm in, and people tell you you're a Christian now, so you must be. But are you? Are you really a disciple? And that is the key. We must be disciples. I've given you some quotes here. Um, Over the years, I've uh, compiled, and it grows all the time. It's about 60, 63, 64 pages now. When I get a quote, come across a quote in a book or a teaching somewhere that I really like, I just put it in here and, and put the name of the person who wrote it or said it. And, um, and I enjoy going through there once in a while and pulling out quotes on things. And I'll probably get myself in trouble for this, but if you'd like a copy of this, I'll be happy to email it to you. Uh, just email me, and uh, I'll be happy to send you a copy of my quote book. But I pulled a few quotes out that have to do with change. Here's one. God can and indeed does change lives but only we change ourselves. Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But think of the Israelites in Egypt. When God delivered them from Egyptian slavery, had he changed their lives? Absolutely. They were slaves, now they're free. They were destined to die probably an early death. Now they've been passed from death to life. Once they were citizens of Egypt, now they are free citizens. Once they were locked into one place, now they're on the move. And um, everything about their lives had changed. But God says, for 40 years I loathed that generation because they didn't change themselves. God had changed their lives, but they hadn't changed themselves. Have you changed yourself? Praise God for all the changes he's brought in your life, but have you changed yourself? Have you exercised your free will to change your attitudes, to change your approach, to increase your faith? 
Athel Dixon, a wonderful, wonderful Christian writer. He writes some amazing novels. He says, short of martyrdom, change may be the ultimate act of faith. Oh boy, I've met believers who just hate change. They think sameness is close to godliness, and it's not. Life is change. Discipleship is change. And we see the Corinthians change. Have you changed? Short of martyrdom. I mean, martyrdom is the toughest thing. That's the highest call of following God, martyrdom. But short of martyrdom, he says, change may be the ultimate act of faith. Rabbi Akiva Tat says the key is to understand that prayer is not directed at changing God at all. It's directed at changing you. The idea is, is that the work of tefillah, which is the Hebrew word for prayer, that the work of prayer is work on the self. A tefillah that does not change you is a failure. Rabbi Heshi Kleiman says the same thing in different words. Prayer doesn't change Hashem's mind. It changes us, and that changes everything. Rabbi Yaakov Hillel. We have to change our way of thinking. Why does Hashem bring problems? It's his way of saying to us, I miss you. I'd like you to talk to me a little bit. Open your heart to me. Say something. Pray to me. I am the one who has given you this problem. We read in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians how uh, God brought affliction and, and Paul wrote and brought pain to them so that they would change, they would repent, they would grow. And that's what Yaakov Hillel is saying here, that God, when he's bringing pain to your life, you have pain right now? That's him trying to get your attention. Talk to him. Change. Rabbi Michael Leitman. Everything that happens in our lives is in order to develop and prompt our spiritual growth. Everything. Did you catch that? Everything. I believe that. If we forget this, we may fall into a false belief that there is a lack of divine supervision and the complete concealment of the Creator. God is doing everything He can to get our attention. And yet we look it away, away from the things he's doing and saying, where is God? He's in the things he's bringing into your life. He's in the pain he brings in your life. He's in the affliction that comes in your life. He's there saying, turn to me. I'm right here. What do I have to do to get your attention? Eric Hoffer, in times of great change, which is always, learners inherit the earth. I like that. In times of great change, which is always, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully equipped for a world that no longer exists. You must be a lifelong learner. And I'll finish with this quote from C.S. Lewis. You can't go back and change the beginning. You can start where you are and change the ending. You can't go back and change the beginning. You can start right here, right now, today, where you are, and you can change the ending. I challenge you to change. It's a challenge all of us. Change isn't always pleasant. Usually it isn't. But the fruit of change, if it's godly and obedient change, the fruit is always wonderful and always worth it. So here are some discussion questions for you by yourself or as a, as a group. 
What is the change of tone between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians? Next question, according to James 3, 13 to 15, what are the characteristics of earthly wisdom? Next, identify a negative change you made in your life, a negative change. How did you finally recognize your error and repair it? And contrary, the next question, identify a positive change you have made in your life. How did it come about? And last, what do you sense God telling you to change in your life now? You may just want to ponder that for a while. And if you're in a group right now and you're, you're, you're thinking about these things, discussing these things, then maybe sharing with the entire group what that thing is will help strengthen your conviction to make that change. Sometimes giving a voice to it to others who love you and you're secure with will help you follow through and be faithful to that commitment to change. And I encourage you to, to study the notes. I have a lot of passages here from the scriptures uh, and, and examples for each of the Hebrew words that we looked at. So I've gone over time a little bit, so let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you so much that you are a God who never changes, but you have birthed us and placed us in a world that is constantly changing. So in the midst of this place that is always in transition, like the waves of the sea, help us, Father, to follow you. Teach us both stand on the rock, but also to walk on the water. Both take great faith. Both requires to keep our eyes upon you and to keep your word in our hearts and minds. Both require a commitment to be the people you want us to be. So, Father, give us the grace to change the things that you want us to change and need to change. And then give us the strength to resist changes that do not come from you. Help us to know the difference between these, Father. We ask it in Yeshua's name. Amen.